A powerful love, a cunning plan, and a huge dose of luck. And only two out of three wouldn't have been enough. Welcome to American Esoterica. Fisher class gives you the Barbie, this is the Just Ken. The essential stuff in between. The personalities, events, and other ephemera that shape our history and culture. I'm Brian Powers. It was a daring plan, on par with anything the best screenwriters in Hollywood could put together. Born out of necessity and love, it was the courageous act of a man who knew that he had only one chance to save his family and it required a near-miraculous amount of luck to go right. But let's start back in 1839. Robert Smalls was born into slavery in Beaufort, South Carolina, a town about halfway between Charleston and Savannah. A man named Henry McKee kept him and his mother enslaved in a mansion on Prince Street. When Smalls was 12, McKee began hiring him out in Charleston, first as a waiter and later on the docks. He met his wife, Hannah Jones, there in 1856, and they began to grow their family soon after, even though South Carolina refused to recognize their marriage. Small saved up money hoping to buy their freedom, but the price of Hannah's freedom was set too high. They would have to find another way. In 1861, the Civil War came to the doorstep of the young family. Smalls was a crew member of the sidewheel steamboat, The Planter, and despite his race and status, he worked as the unofficial pilot of the ship, an important role in navigating Charleston Harbor. The planter had been hired out to the Confederacy, which was using it as a supply ship. Smalls came to be seen as a reliable and trusted member of the crew by his three white and six black crewmates. He was so trusted that the white captain had been leaving Smalls in charge on the boat while he and the other two white officers departed to spend their nights at home with their families a violation of an order for officers to remain with their boats to maintain readiness. As the Confederacy racked up more victories, Smalls began to see his situation as desperate. He and his family could be torn apart at any moment, his wife and children being sold away to far-flung locations where they would be out of reach, maybe permanently. This was common practice, and one that would remain so in a permanent Confederacy. It drove him to craft a plan. Smalls was going to steal the ship and free his family. On the one hand, there were a lot of variables in his favor. He was a seasoned pilot who could direct the ship through the harbor, and he was often left in charge entirely alone overnight. He knew all the signs and signals given to ensure safe passage. And, and maybe most importantly, he knew that the entire harbor was under a blockade by the Union Navy just a few miles offshore. Salvation lay waiting, and he had the vessel to ensure deliverance. The path forward was clear. On the other hand, he faced several major hurdles in putting his plan into action. His first hurdle was convincing his wife. He was clear about the consequences. If they were caught, and it was likely they would be, he and the other men would face almost certain death. 
while the others would be punished severely and probably split up. Both of them, however, were willing to risk it all to give their children a taste of freedom. Recruiting his fellow black crew members to join was also a massive gamble. The mere hint of an escape in a Confederate city engaged in war would lead to a swift reaction against the plotters. Ultimately, all but two agreed to join him and bring what family they had along. Such were the conditions under which they lived that they too were willing to put everything on the line. Once he had assembled his crew, he then had to plan for every other major obstacle. First, the entire city was already extra sensitive to the notion of a slave escape, as a few weeks earlier, a barge was stolen by 15 enslaved people and rowed out to the Union fleet blockading Charleston Harbor. He and the crew would have to ready the ship and make way without arousing suspicion. If anyone noticed the white officers weren't aboard, the whole plan would sink. Second, he had to pilot the ship to a different wharf further into the harbor to pick up the families of himself and his crew. An unusual move and one in full view of the sentries posted along the nearby wharves. Once everyone was on board, the real danger would begin. The planter was a giant sidewheel steamboat that made huge amounts of noise and belched smoke. It could not possibly move undetected, so it would be sailing in full view past Fort Johnson, Fort Moultrie, Fort Sumter, and multiple gun batteries and other fortifications that were on the lookout for any suspicious activity. Any sign of something amiss and any of these could sink the planter in a matter of seconds. Complicating things even further, Robert and Hannah had seen their family grow recently. So, in addition to their four-year-old daughter Elizabeth, they had baby boy Robert Jr. to pacify. And at any point along the way, a crying baby would be a dead giveaway. Finally, the crew would have to contend with one last danger, possibly the most daunting. A Confederate steamer approaching a Union ship directly would be assumed hostile and likely fired upon without some way to communicate its intentions. With all this on his mind, as the white officers left the boat for the night on May 12, 1862, Smalls gathered the crew and let them know this would be the night. Those who agreed to go made a pact that they wouldn't be taken alive, fighting to the last and sinking the planter if necessary. At around 2 a.m., Smalls put maybe the most ingenious part of his plan into action by putting on the well-known straw hat of the captain to impersonate the man for any onlookers. The crew hoisted the usual Confederate and South Carolina flags and then set off. Noticed by a few guards, they still didn't arouse real suspicion, even when they stopped to pick up their passengers. At 3.25 a.m., they began the real journey. Passing first Fort Johnson and then Fort Sumter, everyone on board began to shake with fear, crying and praying quietly. Everyone except Robert Smalls, who stood with a wide-brimmed straw hat covering his face and his arms folded in a perfect imitation of the well-known captain of the planter. He gave two long pulls and one short pull on the whistle cord, the Confederate code for safe passage. On Fort Sumter, no one was the wiser. A sentry even yelled out to Smalls to blow the Yankees out of the water, and Smalls responded in character. It wasn't until the planter was beyond the range of the fort's powerful guns 
did someone notice that the ship was headed straight for the Union blockade and sounded the alarm. By then, it was too late. On the planter, Smalls and crew now had to contend with their final problem. They quickly pulled the flags down and instead hoisted a large white bedsheet to signal surrender as they approached the first Union ship they saw, the USS Onward, a three-masted clipper ship. Unfortunately for Smalls, there was a dense fog, and the commander of the Onward, acting volunteer Lieutenant Nichols, didn't see the bedsheet. He ordered his crew to open the gun ports and ready the guns. All was about to be lost as the planter steamed toward the Onward, which might assume it was about to be rammed by a Confederate ironclad. Just as a gun was raised and ready, there came a cry. Someone had spotted the white flag in the sunrise, and the planter was allowed to come forward. The crew had found freedom at last, and the deck broke out in celebration and taunting cries in the direction of Fort Sumter. As the planter came alongside the Onward, Robert Smalls couldn't contain himself about the other cargo the planter happened to be carrying. A large shipment of something vitally important that was otherwise bound for Fort Sumter. Smalls cried out to Nichols, Good morning, sir! I brought you some of the old United States guns, sir! Smalls had bravely piloted his family and crew to freedom, but his story was still far from over. It was clear that his knowledge of Charleston Harbor was a massive strategic asset, as was the planter and the load of guns it carried. The news of the planter and the deeds of the crew spread quickly to Washington and beyond. Smalls became a national hero for the African-American community, and he was lauded everywhere he went. Even Congress quickly moved to pay Smalls and his crew half of the value of the planter, and he used his share, $1,500, to buy Henry McKee's now-seized and tax-foreclosed mansion where he had grown up in Beaufort. He used his stature to convince Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and President Lincoln of the need to enlist black soldiers. And when he returned home to South Carolina, Smalls did so as the pilot of a Union ship. He saw action and multiple battles in and around Charleston Harbor, and after surviving a sinking, he found himself aboard a familiar vessel, the Planter. After taking command of the ship during a fearsome battle that saw the white captain lose his nerve and hide, he was finally given official command as the captain of the planter. Smalls still wasn't done being impressive. After the war, he was arrested for riding in a segregated streetcar in Philadelphia. He staged a boycott that led to the desegregation of the transit system a few years later. He served as a delegate to the still relatively new Republican National Convention in 1864. He served as a delegate to the South Carolina State Convention to write a new state constitution in 1868, the year he was also elected to the State House of Representatives before moving to the State Senate in 1872. In 1874, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he eventually served five terms. During his time in his hometown of Beaufort, it became symbolic of the success of good reconstruction policies on education, land ownership, and political involvement. After all, it was the city to which Harriet Tubman came to plan her daring raid and assist the newly freed population in rebuilding their lives. It was the city that showed the promise of the nation moving forward under the careful navigation of people like Robert Smalls. We should end it there. With the legacy of Robert Smalls intact and shining like a beacon to the future, he rescued his family 
gained their freedom, bought his enslaver's mansion, convinced a president to recruit his black fellow countrymen, secured war hero status, wrote a state constitution, and served for a decade in Congress. That's his legacy. And he had to watch it crumble. By 1874, Former Confederates had retaken much of the political power in South Carolina through the Democratic Party, and they began a campaign to undo most of the policies that Smalls had worked for. In 1895, they rewrote the state constitution yet again, imposing a poll tax, a literacy test, a land ownership requirement, and other absurd and draconian policies in an attempt to dilute and restrict black voting power. It worked. South Carolina fell into the grips of attempting to recreate slavery through the Black Codes and Jim Crow, a legacy from which it is yet to fully recover. Still, Small stood both optimistic and defiant, and in an 1895 speech before the South Carolina legislature said, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Robert Smalls died a free man in 1915 in the mansion in which he was born into slavery. Maybe it was because of his name, or in spite of it, that he was only ever destined to do big things. This has been American Esoterica. All sounds were made by me, Brian Powers. Did I get it wrong? Did I get it right? Just want to talk about how you want some boiled shrimp right now for some reason? Drop me a note. The address is yell at AmericanEsoterica.com. More information on this show and its episodes can be found at AmericanEsoterica.com. Yeah, that's a new part. Thank you for listening and God bless America. America.